0: I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Micah, chapter 5. You're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 636. That Pew Bible, by the way, if you don't have a Bible or you have someone in your life who needs a Bible, take it. It's our gift to you this morning. If you're going to be a little bit techy and you use the YouVersion Bible app, follow those instructions on the screen. It'll open you up right to our scripture. And I also want to take a moment to acknowledge that we're not alone, that if you're part of the live stream broadcast uh, today, we're glad that you're with us. You may be traveling, you may be homesick. If you are, we're praying for your recovery, but we're glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. We are in the midst of this Advent season doing something a little different this year. We are actually looking at uh, the Christmas story through the lens of some of the beloved hymns of the season. We're getting a little bit of the history behind those songs, the scriptural inspiration for them, and in doing so, hoping to get into the deeper meaning of the Christmas story through both of those filters. You've got the book of Micah open by now, I hope, and I invite you to hear the words that come right out of chapter 5, words that may sound familiar because we just read them moments ago when we lit the candle on our Advent wreath, but hear them anew from Micah chapter 5. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephorath, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, And the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning I want to share with you the story of two people. Two people. Separated by an ocean of time. Two people looking for a sign of salvation. Two people who were directed in their searching to the exact same place. The first person was the author of the words that we just read aloud. His name was Micah and he was a prophet of the Lord in the 8th century BC. Micah hailed from a mid-sized town called Morasheth, located about 25 miles south of Jerusalem. Beyond this, we know next to nothing about Micah's family or occupation before he was called to speak on God's behalf. Was he a farmer? An elder in his community? A priest? Or since his parentage isn't overtly mentioned at all, was Micah an outsider among those to whom he ministered? We just don't know. What is clear is Micah was called into the Lord's service at a time of international fear and uncertainty. The Assyrian empire had ascended to become the dominant power in the region and was laying waste to her rivals. Assyria's rapid rise was due in part to Israel's own internal conflict. Once a unified, prosperous, and powerful nation, Israel had undergone a painful family divorce and had become a divided kingdom. To the north was Israel, to the south was Judah. And though separated from each other, Israel and Judah still had one thing in common. Sadly, both continued to reject and abandon the ways of their founder, the God of all creation, through repeated acts of blatant idol worship and rampant injustice. And even though it was still roughly 150 years away from happening, Micah, by God's grace, could see where the current trajectory would lead his fellow countrymen. If nothing changed, in a century and a half, Jerusalem would be invaded and destroyed, the temple leveled, the people escorted away in chains. And so the Lord sent Micah to warn the people, to urge them to repent of their callousness and indifference and to allow their hearts to be turned around toward the Lord's direction. Micah wasn't the only prophet sent to deliver this summons to the people of Israel and Judah. Isaiah, whom we heard from last week, as well as Hosea and Amos, were also contemporaries of Micah. And yet, despite multiple prophets being sent to the people, God's message fell on deaf ears and hard hearts. Things didn't get better. They got much, much worse. A people, a people who had been set apart to be a holy nation, a light unto the world, instead became a reflection of how God's people should not live. Exploitation of others, the widow and the orphan, eclipsed acting justly on behalf of those who were most vulnerable. Mercy towards the poor and the refugee was ignored for the sake of safety and security. Arrogance toward the ways of the Lord replaced a posture of humble service. In all the messages that he delivered on the Lord's behalf, Micah was looking for a sign of salvation among his people. But at first, there was none to be had. Another man the second man I'd like to introduce you to this morning, found himself on a similar search more than 2,000 years later. His name was Philip Brooks, and he was the rector, the pastor of the Holy Trinity Church in Philadelphia. Much like Micah, Brooks served the Lord's people during a turbulent and trying time. Much like Israel once found herself, the United States was in the throes of civil war. Brother was fighting against brother. The nation was being ripped apart by the prolonged and bloody conflict. Citizen morale was at an all-time low. Everyone knew someone who had been killed in battle. On Sundays, droves of women dressed in black the color of mourning filled the pews where Brooks had been called. Their grieving presence over the death of a husband or a son cast a long shadow over the worship of the gathered community. Week after week, Brooks ascended into the pulpit and tried to offer words of comfort, hope, and inspiration from the scriptures. And in between the Sundays, Brooks regularly visited and cared for those who were left orphaned and widowed by the conflict. If you know your history, you know eventually the fighting ceased. But not before one final shot was unexpectedly fired in Ford's Theater, murdering the President of the United States. On the very day, the Pullman car funeral procession carrying the body of Abraham Lincoln, assassinated in Washington, D.C., only eight days earlier, stopped to lay the President's body in state in Philadelphia's Independence Hall, just down the road. Brooks set aside his sermon for the day to speak to a reconciled and yet to be reconstructed nation in mourning. His message that day, as we would say in our time, went viral and brought great attention to that young preacher. But the war, though, had taken its toll on Brooks. Like countless others, his heart was heavy in the aftermath of so much brutality, So much destruction, so much loss. Having witnessed how it literally tore apart communities and families, culminating in the death of their president, Brooks was exhausted physically, emotionally, and even spiritually. And so in December 1865, Brooks took a year-long sabbatical and made a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, where he hoped to renew his spirit. And while his journey started in Jerusalem on Christmas Eve, Brooks decided to distance himself from the thousands of other pilgrims. Borrowing a horse, he went unaccompanied for a ride and headed southwest toward the hill country of Judea. Like Micah, but in a much different way, Brooks was searching for a sign of salvation. Two people separated by oceans of time, looking for a sign of salvation two people who were directed in their searching to the very same place, Bethlehem. Micah, of course, first got word of the significance of Bethlehem. Micah was looking for a sign of salvation that he could not find among the people. And then Then, in the midst of the repeated message of coming judgment upon the people that he was giving because of their continued rebellion against God, the Lord whispered something extraordinary into Micah's ear. You heard it. We read it together. Despite witnessing the people being flagrant, unrepentant violators of their covenant relationship with God, Micah was still given a reason to have faith. Exile would not be the last word for Israel and Judah. Someone was coming. Who would shepherd the flock in the strength of the lord someone was coming who would clean up the mess that had been made once and for all someone was coming who would make all that is wrong right and renew the whole of creation someone was coming who would save not just israel but his salvation would cover the ends of the earth someone was coming who would be our peace our everlasting peace In this fallen and fearful world this someone who was coming would be more than just another ruler this would be the one whose coming forth is of old Micah was told from ancient days in other words this someone who was coming was the long-awaited Messiah the promised descendant from David's line who would reign forever and it was Micah who was told where to look for this sign of our salvation, the place where the anticipated savior of the world would be born. And it was in a village called Bethlehem Ephrath. That last name of Ephorath distinguished this place from other towns named Bethlehem. And if you know this, you may have heard this before. The name Bethlehem breaks down into two parts. Beth is the Hebrew word for house. Lahem is the Hebrew word for bread. Bethlehem therefore means house of bread. And it was too. Even to this day, Bethlehem is fertile territory, a place where olives, grapes, and grains are richly harvested. It was here in the breadbasket of Judea that Micah found the sign of salvation for which he had been looking. Here in Bethlehem, the house of bread, Micah was told the bread of life, the one who would be called Jesus the Christ would be born. On the other side of that prophecy, long, long, long after Jesus came unto us upon a midnight clear and the earth stood still, a pastor named Philip Brooks had on Christmas Eve, you'll remember, jettisoned the crowds, taken a horse, and headed southwest. War-torn and exhausted, Brooks, like Micah, was searching for a sign, a reason for his faith in the Lord. And like Micah, Brooks ended up in Bethlehem. As the evening approached, he found himself coming to the fields where he imagined certain shepherds had been keeping watch over their flocks by night. Once, long ago, they had been divinely directed to Bethlehem to find the child wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And that night, Brooks felt a kindred tug to follow in the footsteps of those shepherds. And so he quickly made his way into town to find the place of the Savior's birth. On Christmas Eve in 1865, as Brooks rode and walked the streets of Bethlehem, the population numbered several thousand Much larger than the hundreds who occupied the town at the time of Jesus' birth. It didn't take him long to find, to locate the church of the nativity, built over the place where, according to Christian tradition, Jesus was born, constructed by the Roman Emperor Constantine in 326 A.D., it was then and still is now one of the oldest existing churches in the world. Inside the darkness of this ancient basilica, Brooks participated in the Christmas Eve service. The service lasted from 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. in the morning. But as he left the church early that Christmas morn, Brooks was not tired. He was filled with unspeakable joy. He was reborn from having encountered the spirit of the living Christ. Upon returning home, Brooks would tell family and friends his experience that evening was so overpowering it would be permanently singing in his soul. It was that sequence of events that provided the backdrop of the hymn we love called O Little Town of Bethlehem. However, interestingly, Brooks didn't write this carol Until three years later, desiring a new song for the children in the church to sing as part of the annual Christmas program, he put words to paper in reflecting back on his experience of visiting the place where Jesus was born. And once he had the words, he needed a simple melody to go along with his lyrics. So he gave a copy of the song to Louis Redner, a wealthy real estate broker who also just happened to be the organist for the church. Finding just the right melody proved to be challenging for Redner. After several failed attempts to do so, the music finally came to him as he was lying in bed on Christmas Eve. The evening before the Christmas program was to take place. Abruptly wakened from sleep, Redner grabbed pen and paper and composed the melody we all know and love. And to his dying day, Louis Redner Always insisted that song came to him as a gift from God. O Little Town of Bethlehem was an immediate hit, not just with children. Adults also became delightfully enamored with both the words and the tune. Leaflets of the song began to be printed and make the rounds. Other local churches started using it during their annual Christmas services. Over the following six years, O Little Town of Bethlehem became the most popular Christmas carol in Philadelphia. Eventually, the song even caught on globally. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but in Great Britain, a man named Ralph Vaughan Williams paired Brooks's lyrics with a new melody, a British folk tune called Forest Green. And this remains the dominant tune for a little town of Bethlehem in England. And let me tell you, look it up on Google, it is totally different from our American version. But no matter what melody is used, The song remains a treasured favorite of many. Two people living at vastly different times who were looking for a sign of salvation, both of whom were directed in their faith and in their searching towards Jesus. But even more than this, both men were specifically led to the same place, the place of Christ's birth, Bethlehem. And this is significant. Of course, Christmas is primarily, ultimately, about the one who is born unto us. It's about Jesus. Though at Christmas time we may remember him as a baby, this same infant born in a stable would, as a fully grown man, carry a cross down Jerusalem street to Golgotha, where he willingly died as the ultimate Passover sacrifice to cover all the wrongs of humanity. And then three days later, through his resurrection, conquered the physical death that are the wages of all of our sin. Of course, it matters. We remember it is Jesus who comes to us by birth at Christmas time, but my friends, it also matters where Christ was born. If it didn't matter, why did the scriptures even bring it up at all? I mean, Jesus could have arrived anywhere in Israel. But the word made flesh, the long-awaited Messiah was delivered in bethlehem of all places bethlehem is significant which is saying something because the thing is bethlehem wasn't bethlehem wasn't significant more of a village and less of a town bethlehem was barely a blip on the map of israel When the Israelites settled in the promised land and the tribes divided up their territory, each tribe was divided into groups of thousands. And those places that were too small to get a thousand people together were put into other tribes. This tells us Bethlehem was a tiny community, less than a thousand people. However, when Micah, in verse 2 of the prophecy we read, describes Bethlehem as small among the clans of Judah... The Hebrew word translated as small doesn't just mean small in size. It also means insignificant. The Hebrew word actually could literally be translated as lowly, least, weak, or despised. My friends, Bethlehem was so insignificant, so lowly, so unimportant, it was not even counted among the possessions of Judah. In fact, if you go back to the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 15, you will see in the division of the land under Joshua, Bethlehem isn't even mentioned. Bethlehem is omitted altogether. And yet it's here. In this unimportant, forgotten little place, about five miles south of Jerusalem, that the Lord tells Micah, he will begin his promise to reclaim and restore all creation. God circled this exact spot on the map and declared this is the place. This is where the Messiah, the Deliverer, will be delivered into the arms of humanity. Hear it this way. The Lord instructed Micah to prophesy defeat would come to big Jerusalem, but victory would come through the little town of Bethlehem. My friends, Christ being born in Bethlehem is significant. It matters because it highlights a very crucial and encouraging truth. God chooses to do his best work in the places we overlook. We discount or otherwise exclude from our plans. The Lord prefers to show up in the spaces we find unremarkable, unlikely, or even irrelevant in all of our searching. This is the gospel. This is the good news that transformed Micah's message of doom and gloom. This is the good news that enlivened Philip Brooks' shell-shocked and weary faith. This is why Brooks, in the first verse of A Little Town of Bethlehem, addresses directly the little town where Jesus was born. Echoing the words first given to Micah, Brooks heralds the astounding truth that in a place which to the rest of the world seemed quite insignificant, the hopes and fears of all the years had been met and forever changed. So more than just the setting of the first Christmas and thus the backdrop of all nativity plays, Brooks understood Bethlehem represents so much more In our lives, it stands as a constant, powerful reminder that despite all appearances, and often in the last places we care to look, God is working right under our noses, weaving the threads of amazing grace into the fabric of our broken dreams and lost hopes. Think about it. Do you ever think about it? As the ordinary everyday people of Bethlehem went about their normal daily routine, heaven and earth were intersecting right in their backyard. It was unlikely. For those who were just caught up in the mundane of their daily lives, the birth of the savior in their hometown wasn't the anticipated play. And yet God made this unexpected move that altered the course of human history both immediate and future and onwards into eternity. Beloved, the Lord is still using the same method the way of Bethlehem today. Behind the scenes, while we go about our day-to-day motions and routines of our lives, God, through his Holy Spirit, is engineering some significant moments for our future. If only we had eyes to see, if only we had ears to ear, if only we would look up, And notice, all around us, seeds of salvation are being planted. All around us, roots of faith are being deepened and widened. All around us, harvests of love and peace are being prepared in fractured relationships and forsaken communities that will bear fruit lasting generations. Because the way of Bethlehem is the way of the kingdom of God upside down in its approach, and often surprising us at every turn. What's your posture towards your life? Are you cynical, or are you willing to be surprised? Because Bethlehem represents even more than just the places in our lives where God is laboring unexpectedly to bring the coming of his kingdom. Bethlehem can also be a metaphor for our very lives themselves with all of our struggles, with all of our pain, with all of our fears, with all of our losses, with all of our disappointments. Ask some of you here today, do you feel small and unimportant? Do you sit here today and do you feel small and unimportant? Have you been told or made to feel as if you are insignificant and have little value? Is that something you've been told your entire life or maybe just as you're getting older? Or maybe just because you're younger? Do you feel small and unimportant? Have you been told, have you been made to feel you are insignificant and have little value? I'm gonna suspect that most of us, whether we realize it or admit it or not, we do. Because again, many of us, many of us count ourselves out, right? We count ourselves out because we're not powerful enough. We're not important enough. We're not accomplished enough. We're not wealthy enough. We're not articulate enough to make a difference. When the need is there, when the call comes, it's always about what we don't have, it's always about how it's, when there's not enough, we're not enough, and again, that's something that people can tell us, you can't do this, you can't handle that, that's something sometimes we can just tell ourselves, I'm not good enough, I don't have enough, I'm not enough. My friends, if that voice has ever crept into your heart, if that voice is speaking into your ear, even now, Remember Bethlehem. Because Bethlehem assures us the Lord has an incredible knack for taking the seemingly minor places and people and using them in major ways. There's no one too small in God's economy. There's no one too poor, no one who is worthless, no one who is insignificant for the Lord to use in bearing and accomplishing great things for his kingdom come. And again, if you think I'm just gotten caught up in Christmas magic and miracles, making something out of nothing in the Christmas story, don't take my word for it. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul Do you remember this? Reflects this same understanding when he writes in his first letters to the Corinthians. How the Lord, do you remember this? How the Lord chooses to work through the perceived foolish, weak, lowly, and despised. The weak, foolish, lowly, and despised. That's where the Lord chooses to work in order to shame the so called wise. Strong and proud. And Paul says the Lord does this in order to nullify the things that are. In other words, to nullify the way of the world as we know it. God's power, Paul continues, is perfectly displayed in such littleness in order to demonstrate the way of his kingdom. Although you may not believe it, although you may have been made to feel insignificant in the eyes of others, don't you dare live within that perspective. Whoever you are, wherever you find yourself, whatever you are able to do, know that to the Lord our God, you are significant. You are worth divinity becoming flesh. The things you don't have are not what define you or your capacity. We're at a time of year where I know much of it is wrapped up in generosity and cheer in the giving and getting of gifts, but the underbelly of the giving and getting of gifts can also feed a lie, a lie that we have to get more in order to be more, that we have to give more in order to be more, that somehow we can merit, we can earn, we can finally get enough to be able to make a difference. And that's a lie. It's a lie that we can get wrapped up around in in our lives. You don't, you're not defined. Who you are is not defined by what you don't have or do have. What you don't have doesn't define you or your capacity. Your identity is in Christ's claim upon your life through the manger and the cross. You are enough already. That is the declaration of the manger and the cross. And as for your capacity, your capacity is not going to increase based upon what you get or what you give in worldly means. Your capacity has an eternal, inexhaustible limit because the Spirit of the Lord is upon you. And through the Spirit of the Lord, you can trust, when we speak of capacity, in the Spirit of the Lord, you can trust that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Is that how you see your life? Is that how you see this world? You don't have to be somebody in the world's eyes in order for the Lord to work in and through you to bring goodness to others. Hear that, you don't have to be somebody in the world's eyes for the Lord to work in and through you to bring goodness to others. You simply need to be willing and available are you willing are you available do you remember mary's words let it done be done unto me your servant do you remember isaiah's words here i am lord send me are you willing are you available if you are don't underestimate The power of a small act of kindness. A smile. An arm around the shoulder. A quick phone call. A small bag of food. Or whatever the Lord calls and equips you by his grace to do. To you it may seem like nothing. Others around you may see what's the big deal. What difference can that make? To you it may seem like nothing. Others around you may discount it. But to those who receive it. To those who God blesses through your availability and obedience. That act, no matter how small, like Bethlehem, can change the trajectory of their life. The trajectory of a life. Are you willing? Are you available? With all its talk of silent nights, Dark streets and mortal sleeping, Philip Brooks's sweet lullaby of Christ's birth captures the good news of how our God delights in using the Bethlehems of life, small, seemingly inconsequential moments and so called little people in big ways. I mean, this is how Jesus first came into our world. This is how God continues to be with us in Christ. And so as we draw nearer to Christmas and we're looking forward to seeing Jesus in nativity sets and hearing about Jesus in holiday carols, all this is good, all this is as it should be, but let's not miss Christ where he is now. For as Brooke reminds us through his beloved hymn, where meek souls still receive him still, the dear Christ enters in into the Bethlehems of our lives in the poverty of our need in the places where we feel small and insignificant where we least expect him but always exactly where we need him Amen